nothing more gratifying as a psychiatrist that know that you gave the quality of life to a patient back that they once had. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Sam Preston. He graduated from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and is board certified in family medicine and psychiatry after finishing a combined residency at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He has held positions that include 4th Infantry Division Psychiatrist, Iraq Joint Operational Area Command Psychiatrist, and Commander of the Hohenfeld Army Health Clinic in Germany. He is a Colonel in the Army and is currently the Chief of the Office of the Surgeon General Behavioral Health Division. Welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We've got Dr. Sam Preston. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. So you trained in, in psychiatry, and I think people want to know, you know, what does a behavioral health doc do in the military? It, well, it's, it's tremendous and it's varied. And so when you think of psychiatrists, I think oftentimes what, what someone imagines is, is perhaps the classical individual with a vest, a couch, talking through, through some challenge or maybe a disease process with somebody. Or sometimes the more neoclassical version is just this individual who diagnoses a mental disorder and then prescribes medication. That is not reflective of psychiatry in general, but even more distinct is, is operational psychiatry or, or army operational psychiatry specifically which is really a subspecialty of, of psychiatry. And, and what that entails is it's a public health approach to mental health. So the, the army psychiatrist has at least two patients in the room at all times, and most of the time, three. And so when we see a soldier, we have very clearly in front of us that soldier who we're using evidence-based practice to, to help uh, work through a challenge or maybe a disease process, a diagnosis. And so that's a clear relationship that is very parallel in the civilian sector. But at the same time, we're having to manage the other patient, which is the command. Is this soldier able to perform in a cohesive team and uh, project lethality against our enemies? Is this individual able to go to sniper school, ranger school, special forces. We're continually assessing uh, the larger mission so that the command is our patient and then the, the greater army is our patient because we need to look at an individual population health-based practice where let's say I am the behavioral health officer for a brigade. So for those of you unfamiliar with the army, a brigade can have anywhere from about 3,200 to 6,800 uh, soldiers, uh, depending on the type of brigade. And if I'm seeing one specific company that has a spike in behavioral health casualties, be it stress-related reaction, depression, sleep issues, drinking and substance issues, and I'm continually hearing there is this stressful leader or this stressful individual that's really causing a lot of this additional stress upon what we already do day to day. It is our responsibility as Army Mental Health 
to then take that information, package it in a way where we help and aid the unit so that they can either address that toxic leadership or that situation, that sleep-wake cycle, that the, the operations tempo that's going so that we can make that a more healthy, cohesive unit. And so Army Mental Health is truly a subspecialty and it's very, very much public health driven. And our mindset is never singularly completely with that patient, although that is always primary. The patient in front of us is always primary. I don't wanna confuse that, but we're also always thinking about the larger picture and how that fits in with that, that unit and then the larger Army. Where are psychiatrists and other behavioral health assets best utilized on the battlefield? Far forward. And, and so when we look at uh, the, the modern model for combat and operational stress control, the very first premise of good combat operational stress control is proximity. And the closer we're able to get within the, the actual space of the soldier, the better that is. Because not only do we want to practice proximity, but in our tenants, we also practice immediacy. So the sooner we're able to see that a unit or an individual is stressed, and there are different behaviors, some of them are performance related, some of them are legally related, behaviorally related, when we start seeing those things, the sooner that we're able to assist the command or the individual to address them, the more resilient the command the soldier will become, the more lethal they will be, and then therefore uh, return to the fight uh, much quicker. And so pushing behavioral health far forward within the BSBs is essential for, for military and army readiness. And that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we've had two decades at war. What significant contributions do you think that military behavioral health has made to the field of medicine over that time? Well, it's, it, it is impossible to separate military, specifically Army psychiatry, from modern post-traumatic stress disorder treatment and assessment. We have the largest behavioral health study of combat operations, the MHAT studies, the the mental health advisory team studies, which occurred in both Afghanistan and Iraq, there are population-based public health assessments of stress and combat operational stress control measures within an operational environment. And from that study, from that tremendous body of work, uh, we've been able to identify specific leadership qualities and attributes that make their organizations more mentally health, um, sorry, men mentally uh, healthy and potent and improve the performance of the units. Additionally, we've observed leadership behaviors which are contrary to good performance and uh, mental health stability, which lead to further combat mental health casualties and evacuations. And so just that population-based study has given us a tremendous amount of information regarding sleep-wake cycles. Uh, so you think the performance triad that was so popular within the United States Army about sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Well, that sleep component was, was really identified within these MHAT studies. And, and the MHAT studies were able to, to show just how significant sleep and operations tempo were related to combat effectiveness. 
And so commanders were then thinking about sleep-wake cycles and in, in how that enhances their uh, potency on the battlefield. But in the, in the uh, psychiatry writ large, um, when you think about combat-related post-traumatic stress disorder, the, the advancements in our evidence-based treatments, as well as the development of our far-forward community-based uh, behavioral health system of care are truly exceptional effects from, from the two decades of war. So the Army's development of the behavioral health system of care is identified by multiple uh, civilian sources to include Harvard Review, just to name one, MIT, as the standard of behavioral health services really for the country. And a portion of that is the, is the idea that data-driven outcomes will inform uh, providers. And if a provider is able to assess in real time the therapeutic outcomes with their patients, it improves the treatment and the overall outcome. And so what that means is the Army developed what's called the Behavioral Health Data Portal. And what this is, is it is a, a, a computer system where all of our patients are able to fill out standard screeners and they're all validated. It talks about the stress that they're going through on a day-to-day -day basis, the depression, anxiety, sleep, partner relational issues, substance and alcohol use. And by, by taking this data at each appointment, the provider is able to, to basically look at the vital signs of their patient and then apply that to treatment. You trained in family medicine and psychiatry, is that correct? And tell us about your first assignment. Sure. So my first assignment was as the division psychiatrist at the 4th Infantry Division. I, I will say when you're coming out of Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center, legacy Walter Reed on Georgia Avenue in D.C., uh, you're in a city and we don't have a lot of uh, armor units or brigade combat teams in the DC metropolitan area. The, tra the, the transition from, from DC to Colorado in and of itself is a cultural shift. And, and so I, I, was, I had to manage that. Um, you know, I enjoy living in a city and, and, and Colorado Springs is, is a bona fide city, but it's, it's a small city. But then on top of that, I had limited exposure to the Army through ROTC. It, I, I did have Army exposure, but it, it wasn't with brigade combat teams and maneuvers and uh, field training exercises. And so when I went to my first assignment, the learning curve was incredibly steep. And if you can think about 2009, we had just come really in the middle of the 2007 started surge. And so the brigades were rocking and rolling. There was either one or two brigades of the four combat brigades uh, out the door at Fort Carson at any given time. And so my role there was really a lot of screening, training non-behavioral health providers because we were so short on, on behavioral health resources. I had to get smart really, really quick on what a battalion surgeon was, what a brigade surgeon was, what a meadow or medical officer is. I didn't know any of those things, but those were, were becoming the, the people that I aligned with. And I was responsible for training and getting them up to speed so that they would know basically behavioral health 101 
as they were going out the door. And so it was a, a highly, highly kinetic first duty assignment. And, and I was so, so very blessed to have a mentor there who was the division surgeon, then Lieutenant Colonel Mary Krieger, now Brigadier General Mary Krieger, who, who took me under her wing and took that extra time to help and understanding that it, you know, I was fresh out of a residency and green, green as can be. And, and, and helped introduce me to the key stakeholders and the key players and set very manageable expectations for me that, that allowed me to build those relationships and, and support the warfighting mission, both for the brigades leaving, uh, going out the door, and then receiving the brigades coming back, making sure that they were screening them. We were screening people at the airport. We were having them complete surveys uh, before leaving so that we could identify some folks that once they arrived to the flight line, they did some out briefs and we would pull some of them to the side. We would talk with them, make sure they're doing all right. I will, I will tell a story, uh, and this kind of highlights the importance of this. There were times where I would drive to the flight line and, and it was never, you know, at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. It was more like 3 a.m. on a Sunday. And I would get a, a, a stack of surveys that would indicate some risk factors of soldiers that were coming in on the flight line. And I would greet those soldiers. And one of them, the, the soldier's wife had left, left him with the kids. Uh, she had taken the kids home, took basically everything from their house. He had been in combat for 15 months and his command did not feel comfortable telling him that. And so I was going to be the one who met with him after his command informed him at the flight line that his family would not be greeting them, him and that he would need to be staying at the barracks because his house had been cleaned out. And so to support that individual in that scenario um, was a lot of uh, the things that me and my colleagues have done. Assisted commands with breaking bad news um, and we did it for 15 years. <laughs> so how do you handle a situation like that? Well, with honesty, because, because we, we, we owe it to the individual that, that is a warfighter, that is a human being, and it doesn't do anyone any favors if we dance around the topic, because if we dance around the topic, put rose colored glasses on, we're not going to necessarily be there with the soldier when he or she arrives at that empty house for the first time. So with the command, informing the soldier, letting the soldier know this is the situation, we're here for you, we love you, welcome back. This isn't what you expected, but you still got a family and we're gonna help you through this and it ain't gonna be easy. There's gonna be a lot of stuff that you gotta do and it's the things that you didn't really expect or want but we're going to help you do that. So I, I would say you manage it through honesty and integrity. You don't dance around it and you let the, the soldier soldier and, and, and manage as best as he or she can uh, and support every step of the way. So, so when you were deployed downrange, uh, are there any memorable cases that come to mind that were very memorable to you there's one that sticks out and it talks to how mental health has to support one another. 
And so uh, I was on a forward operating base in north central Iraq uh, near Tikrit. And during my time period in 2010-11, there was some kinetic fighting that was going on in the area. But in general, in general, it, it, it started to calm down. But we're still in a war zone. And, and life happens. And so with the advent of Skype and the ability to immediately talk with family members uh, that were home, we were observing this kind of different type of combat stress because previously individuals were able to concentrate on the mission and every once in a while they might get a letter or a phone call from their spouse or their sweetheart and then they were able to drive on. But with the advent of Skype and other immediate kind of video connection, soldiers were often brought back to the home environment even though that they were deployed and they would be made aware of issues with little Sammy or Johnny or Dougie, the kids, and there's nothing that they could do about it. Or they were made aware of marital infidelity or you name it, other stressors that would occur. And there was a, there was a patient that was being seen by another psychiatrist who had a very difficult deployment. And the psychiatrist was a seasoned psychiatrist, still is just one of the best. And the psychiatrist was called to the, the shower room. Um, some soldiers were concerned about the individual and the individual w- was known by the other soldiers to be seeing behavioral health. And the psychiatrist came in and started talking to the patient through, through the door and saying like, hey, you know, is everything okay? Is everything you know, going all right. And the individual wasn't making sense and sounded very paranoid. Needless to say, the individual had his, his personal weapon and ended up killing himself in front of his provider, which is a horrendous story. And I say that because that individual was a part of the medical team. And that, that event impacted the whole hospital because the, the combat support hospital was there at that installation. And I watched leadership at its absolute finest in that horrible, horrible hour. So not only did the leadership immediately stomp out any rumors, they brought in everyone, talked with people individually uh, that were associated with that, with the deceased. They uh, allowed space for that provider to heal. They gave the provider some time. We all covered down so that the psychiatric services were covered. The unit could have easily folded under the pressure and the sadness of what had happened, but we had several mass events and the unit instilled a sense of purpose, even in that horrible, horrible event. And thanks to a group of commanders, their DCCS and leaders who acknowledged the horrible act that occurred. We watched that combat support hospital grow from that and support one another. And they never forgot, they never forgot that fallen soldier. And that soldier was loved and missed and and still is with that unit. But they also responded to it correctly, how a unit does that has a tremendous loss. 
either by suicide or by enemy fire. They circled around. They were honest with one another. They instilled a sense of purpose, of combined purpose. They mourned the soldier's loss and they drove on. And so I know that's a really heavy story, but when I think of my deployment and the many, many things that I saw, that one stands out, stands out the most. What would you tell to other physicians that they should know or, or do to prepare for deployment? And did you feel prepared? Well, I think that you have a sense of, I'm going to be as prepared as I can be at this moment. And so it's like going into a test. You can cram for it and, and you can get as prepared as you can, but until you're actually in the test, that's when you know how prepared you were. And so um, I, I, again, I had a wonderful command team that was with the 4th Infantry Division that instilled in me that I needed to be flexible. And if I was an adult learner and I was open to correction and I wouldn't pity myself if I made a mistake, but I would correct my actions and do better next time, that I would succeed. And I had that love, I had that level of support. So I felt I felt that I was prepared because the people to my right and left allowed me to feel supported and prepared. What advice would you give another psychiatrist prior to them deploying? Let's say they're gonna deploy out this month. What what advice would you give them? Talk to your Talk to your spouse or significant other about expectations as you deploy. And this goes for soldiers, any physicians, or the psychiatrists I mentor, where I see the most combat operational stress now, it, it has to do with the relationships back home. And having really honest conversations about what are the expectations of our relationship while we're gone? What, what are... How are we going to manage struggles when we have them? Uh, how are we going to address situations that may arise and, and talk through different scenarios with your spouse and be honest? I think that that is the most important for those that have spouses for or significant others. And then a, a just general piece of advice is do something for yourself every day and start now Pick it out. It can be a hobby. It can be 15 minutes of self-meditation, yoga, Peloton, riding a bike. Do that before you deploy. Develop that routine. Do it during deployment. So it needs to be something that you can do during deployment. And then do that same thing or something similar for the rest of your life. Give yourself a routine that is healthy, that provides you some level of consistency and introspection, and be gentle with yourself because you're going to make mistakes. And if you do that, I, I think that you're going to be as prepared as you can be for the very, very dynamic environment that is the battlefield. Do you have any personal cases that in your entire career, deployed, not deployed, that you would consider up your best save as a military psychiatrist? When I think back on, on individuals that say, you know, and, and very rarely do psychiatrists get the feedback, you saved my life. There, there was a patient of mine who I needed, to, I needed to understand that when people talk to me as a psychiatrist, in a way they're, they're, they're telling their story, but they're also hoping on some level that there is an action. And, and this individual had mentioned 
very, very matter of fact that her husband had thrown something at her. And, and, and she thought nothing of it. And, and I pursued that. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. What, what was thrown at you? It was a shoe. And, and okay, did you feel threatened? Oh, no, 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 not at all. You know, nothing to worry about. And, and it just didn't sit well with me. And so I thought, oh, okay. You know, are your children safe? Is everybody safe? I went through all of the questions and, and she said, oh, oh, absolutely. So I decided, you know, that's not, that's not a family advocacy report quite yet. But I, I remembered that. And in subsequent sessions, I had I'd asked her, you know, you know, what's going on? It, are you, you know, feeling threatened or, or abused? And finally, she said, you know, I need to be honest with you. My husband's been incredibly abusive. And I, I fear for my life. I fear for my daughter's life. And I don't want him to lose his career because he's about ready to retire. And if, if you do anything, we'll lose his retirement. I don't have a job. We have a young daughter. I don't know how we'll be able to afford anything. And that 30-minute session that I was allotted went well over three hours. And at the end, I, I contacted Family Advocacy and Child Support Services and that family was able to get help and they were able to see what's beautiful about the army family advocacy system that's different than the other services we actually have a clinical arm they were able to have family support clinical services and they were able to get marital and family treatment and so what would have been potentially a very, very bad situation of a family holding on white knuckled just to make it through to a retirement. They were able to get the help that they needed. And because of a supportive command that, that understood that domestic violence is often inherited and though not acceptable, not ever acceptable, was also able to provide a, an environment where that family could heal. They are now in the retirement phase of their life and they're doing well. And both of them talk to me now, the, uh, the husband's no longer drinking. He had a tremendous uh, alcohol problem, no longer drinking. They're going to church. Daughter's doing fantastically. And though, though on an individual basis, I may have helped people through depression and, and who have thanked me, there's nothing more gratifying as a psychiatrist that know that you gave the quality of life to a patient back that they once had. Have you ever participated in any interesting training opportunities or humanitarian missions? I was asked by Regional Health Command Pacific to go to Nepal to do a, a subject matter expert behavioral health exchange with the Nepalese army. And this was in the wake of their earthquake that was in the mid 2000s, where they had several hundred thousand casualties in Kathmandu and the Nepalese army at the time was struggling with an increased rate of suicides, similar to what the army was going through in 2012. And they had asked the army, the U.S. Army, to provide some strategies for combating suicide and enhancing behavioral health services for their soldier population, but also their country. And so I, I, I went with the contingency from uh, Regional Health Command Pacific to Kathmandu, and we met uh, the three 
military psychiatrists in the whole 90,000 Nepalese army. They only had three. And it was tremendous seeing how their medical system with limited resources responded to that incredible catastrophic event, that earthquake in in Nepal. And one of the outcomes of that engagement was the idea, we introduced the idea of virtual and telebehavioral health. Because Nepal is a very long, thin, mountainous country. But I think what, what struck me the most with that visitation, with that humanitarian subject matter expert exchange was just how proud I was of those psychiatrists, because in that moment, in that catastrophe, or we, they were reminded that psychiatrists are physicians. And oftentimes psychiatrists, regardless of what military we belong to, were put as the triage officer. And they put the senior psychiatrist, one of the three, as the triage officer for the emergency trauma base. And she developed an algorithm to assess the ability to provide care to pediatric patients on the fly. Because what was happening, what she noticed is, the teams were were giving heroic efforts to children that were not going to live, and other children were dying because they were doing these heroic efforts. So she developed on the fly an algorithm, and I'm gonna paraphrase, but it came down to basically, after about 10 or 15 seconds of stimulation, if there is no spontaneous breath, they go to the next child. And by making, by that psychiatrist, that physician making that decision, she is credited with saving hundreds, if not more children. And so uh, it was just a phenomenal experience and a, and a tribute to the, the, the type of physicians that psychiatrists are. So if you were to receive a multi-million dollar grant to analyze or study one thing with military medicine, what would you want to study? It would be sociologic. Currently, the United States Army is in the midst of a suicide epidemic. Um, and you can superimpose the suicide epidemic on, on COVID-19, which began roughly March of 2020 and continuing currently. We've had a spike in suicidal behaviors. And Army Public Health Center, myself, as well as the Office of the Chief of Chaplains, we've gone around and we've looked at different data sets. And what we're discovering is that this, this, this behavior, this self-directed harm, it, it isn't necessarily tied to behavioral health. But like so many things in our government, behavioral health becomes this bucket. That mass shooting was due to ineffective mental health or unavailable mental health. And, and really, the cause isn't mental health at all. In fact, mental health patients tend to be less violent than the general population. And it has much more to do with a social phenomenon, a, a change in the way that we look at, at the sanctity of life. And I know that's almost like a, a religious term, but it's important to understand that I think we are investing a lot of, of money, time, and resources in this bucket that is, is mental health. And we're really not looking at the social, climate, cultural contributions to self-directed violence. And if I had a multi-million dollar study, I would look at what social components, be it individual spirituality, 
be it relationships, drug and alcohol use, individual history of abuse, abuse patterns, and really boil it down to what is it within our, our society right now in our military army culture that is causing this increase in self-directed violence? Because my hypothesis is it isn't necessarily stigma and it isn't necessarily absence of behavioral health resources, though both of those exist. Both of those exist. But it is not that easy that we can say it's mental health. It's much, much deeper than that, and it's much harder to fix. What advice would you give now to a 20-year-old friend or family member who was interested in medicine and wanted your advice about the military as an option? Well, I would say do it, but, but I would also say it's always best to have options and never put your eggs in one basket. And so... In my own personal life, I have pigeonholed myself into ideas and I've been so tied to an outcome. You know, I have to have this job. I have to have this, um, this roadmap. And if I veer off that roadmap, well, then I get stressed out. I would say give yourself a roadmap with a lot of different routes on it that can get you generally in the direction that you want to go. And the army may be one of those directions that you get to that, that final happiness. But you also have to understand and appreciate that, that that happiness that you feel as a 20-year-old, as you start having a family or as you develop as a young man or woman, that, that end state may change. And so that makes it all the more important to have a diverse host of different directions that you can go in your life. And if the army is, is one of those forks in the road that you go down, be very, very proud of that. You know, in my experience, um, behavioral health seems to be associated with, you know, a certain stigma. Do you have any comments about how that has evolved over the past 10, 15, 20 years? The biggest story that, that army mental health, army behavioral health, uh, can tell right now is one of stigma. And stigma is a term that's used interchangeably with a lot of things. But basically, we've captured it as stigma is a barrier uh, for people to seek care. And stigma is something that's both internal and external. And it's something, an internal stigma would be someone saying, I'm weak if I seek behavioral health services. It means I can't manage myself. An external stigma would be policies or procedures or maybe a, a leader that says anybody in my unit that seeks behavioral health is weak. That's external. So there's two types. And we talk about stigma in the military. And, and I just want to say I, I have been in the U.S. Army since nearly the beginning of the global war on terror. And at one of the duty locations that I was early in my career, we had to educate a command team on how inappropriate it was for when a soldier had a behavioral health profile not to carry a weapon because they were unsafe. It wasn't appropriate for them to give that soldier a pink rock that was 12 inches in length to carry around in formation when they turned in their weapon. When they, turned in, when they, when they were off profile, they then could hand the pink rock back to get their weapon. That's where we were in about 2008. 
And so if you think about the changes that we have made in reference to talking about behavioral health, stigma, being far forward and having behavioral health at the table where mental health providers are no longer called the wizard that makes soldiers disappear, but actually parts of, of the command team that enable the mission to be accomplished. That is a tremendous stride for Army mental health, for, for the Army command. And to watch that paradigm shift occur over the last 15 years has been tremendous. And the Army should be incredibly proud of the strides that it has, it has made in the re arena of reducing stigma, both internal and external. Does it still exist? Absolutely. But, and is the Army still focusing on eliminating it? Absolutely. And that's why I love being a part of this organization. It's a learning organization and good enough just isn't good enough. Well, thanks, Sam. We really appreciate your time and, and being on Wardock's podcast. You know, you've got some great experiences and some really great stories, and we really appreciate you spending some time with us uh, today. And so I just wanted to say thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for doing this, gentlemen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Wardock's Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.